Oi, budge. On this episode of Budge, How to Fudge Being Human, we talked to a good friend of the show and skills expert, Ben Barden, on why don't humans skill up for the climate change crisis is coming towards us. We hope you love this episode as much as we do and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and wherever you find Budge. Strangely, when you're talking about the decarbonisation of the economy, you're really talking about the electrification of everything. Yep. So everything that isn't currently electrified uh, should be, uh, with the caveat that the electricity needs to be generated renewably and stored in ways that um, don't have a big impact on the environment. As jobs go, we're going to see jobs leaving the economy pretty rapidly uh, because of AI, but we're going to see this whole growth in the climate change space that um, Ben's talking about. What's the advice you give to somebody in terms of coping with those changes, being able to adapt to new technologies and the new sectors? And there are those three things, the pressures of, of, of uh, climate change and the two under technology, AI and robotization or automation. Um, and, but then what's different is it's not just a sector that's changing, it's all sectors. And it's not just a country or a region, it's global. Welcome to Budge, How to Fudge Being Human, the podcast that helps you be better at being human. If we're going to assume that we're not all working for our AI overlords, uh, there are a whole range of jobs out there. But we spend so much time talking about allied health, aged care, disability sector, cybersecurity, digitalization, technology, and so many other areas. But there's a whole raft of jobs in one sector that just doesn't seem to get the coverage uh, that it deserves. We're going to talk about skills of the future, jobs of the future for humans, and then a whole sector that, that offers so much opportunity uh, that seems to be missed. As always. As always. Yet again, here he is. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Darren Coppin, behavioral scientist. Uh, my good mate, co-host of Budge. I was your good mate. Until he started banging on the table again. <laughs> the bed was <laughs> occupied. <laughs> How are you, sir? I was exhausted after that table shenanigan. And even better than Darren, we were joined by Ben Barden, who, who you and I know through the vocational skills sector uh, with, with incredible experience working in that space, but also now a climate change uh, consultancy. Welcome, mate. Thanks back to the to the podcast. It's great to be back, and it's great to see that Darren hasn't changed his behaviour and is still a banging king. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. And it's good to see that this is two months after the first podcast we recorded together, and you're wearing the same shirt. No, it's not the same shirt. It's reversed. Oh. As always, if you like what we're talking about, make sure you connect with us. We'd love to hear from you on our Facebook group, on our Facebook page. Uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, but right now the best thing you can do is press subscribe down below uh, and um, and watch our next episode, which comes out every Tuesday morning, 7 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Mate, Ben, what is this sector that, that well, we, we've previously had, had you on here talking about um, climate change. We talked about, uh, you know, the denialist movement a little bit, and we talked about that what humans need to do to be able to adapt and make the massive changes that we need to. Where that, I suppose, leads us on to is, is employment and skills. And mm. There's a whole raft in that sector that we just don't seem to be talking about enough. Mm. Yeah, well, there's a bit of um, hubbub about it. But, um, you know, essentially, we're at the cusp of uh, the decarbonisation of the economy, which will be as big a change as um, the electrification of the economy. Um, and some some people think... That's, that's, sorry, that's a great analogy, isn't it? Mm. I love that thing that... Um, 
there's two things. There's the, there's the Henry Ford quote that if you'd asked the people what they wanted, they would have said more horses. Hmm. And there's also a massive study about 1900 in, in London to talk about the future. You know about this study? Yeah. Where, where they actually wanted, the, the outcome of it was to create more troughs for the horses, wasn't it, to prepare for the future? Yeah. And when they were looking at it, they said the big crisis, the existential crisis that we're facing is the amount of horse poo that yes. we're going to have to get rid of from yes. the streets hmm. of London. Yeah, and, which, whereas they were completely wrong. It was dog poo that they really didn't use to worry about. <laughs> which, which we all lived with until like the 1980s from yeah, my childhood yeah, memory. Right. Hey, well, hey, there was another thing. When telegraph poles went up everywhere, they blamed there was a, a, a pandemic of flu uh, prior to the Spanish flu, and they mm. blamed the new telegraph poles. Now, do you remember in the early days of this pandemic, they were saying it was 5G mm. telling me it's causing not. COVID? Mm. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, there's so much interesting stuff, wasn't there, about... Um, uh, conspiracy theories and how it was around in the 20s and the 30s and it's all the stuff we've been through before. But um, back to the point. <laughs> what was the point? I think the point was that we've gone through this massive change with electrification, didn't we, about 120, 130 years ago. That's the scale of change we've got to go through with climate change. Do we have the skills and jobs to do that? Um, well, at the moment, no, not quite, um, but we're certainly on the pathway to it. So uh, to when you're talking about, um, strangely, when you're talking about the decarbonisation of the economy, you're really talking about the electrification of everything. Yep. So everything that isn't currently electrified uh, should be, uh, with the caveat that the electricity needs to be generated renewably and stored in ways that um, don't have a big impact on the environment, like the pumped hydro uh, examples that we discussed in a, at a previous time. So... Um, when you think about electrification of everything, um, it is going to be a boon for those who are in the electricity business. So electricians, power um, uh, distributors, the grid managers, um, electrical appliance manufacturers, so that whole manufacturing base. Um, and of course, what we're about to embark on is the electrification of transport. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, cars um, will be electrified. I've yeah. got to raise this with you both. He's a fascinating guy on... Um on TikTok, and he's, he's the world's worst conspiracy theory. It's hilarious. But one of the things he does... He what puts, makes a bad conspiracy theorist? I think the comedy is value. Is true? The, no, the comedy value. But what he points <laughs> to is, is that one of the things he does do, he goes around, he shows buildings from, you know, 100 years ago where um, we used to have cellars in London, of course, and he points to the fact that actually those cellars were once windows and there's been this massive, what he calls, mud flood. And it's just where we've had to rebuild on, on previous gen civilizations. It's, it's total nonsense. The guy, you know, the guy's selling giants and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, he's, he goes to places. No, hang where, on. Yeah, how big are the giants? Yeah. <laughs> but, but the one thing that's fascinating that he's got, he's kind of got right, which is really annoying, is, is the amount of electrified transport we had 100 years ago. No. You know, mm. there was literally the trams were electrified, the... Um, uh, we actually had electric scooters and bicycles, and we had all this stuff that we're bringing back now, mm. uh, which I find fascinating. So, so you know, it's not it, you know, I hate you know, I think about conspiracy theories, but uh, it's fascinating. There's a lot of that stuff old is new again with this electrification process. Yeah, and um, you know, it's it, I, I find it quizzical really about why we would invest in fixed rail stuff um, for uh, reinventing trams as um, putting them on rails when. Mm you know, autonomous vehicles or, uh, or uh, electric buses um, that can be controlled um, within the city uh, is, is the way of the future and you wouldn't have to dig up the roads and have mm. a massive cost blowout. Mm. But, but anyway, uh, better to have more public transport than not. 
Yeah. So, um, look, all of those uh, all of those jobs that go to supporting the electrification of the uh, of the economy will be the front line, and that will get a lot of focus. Um, you know, like. We're just about in Australia to upgrade the transmission network. Upgrading the transmission network as a way of providing resilience to the overall system uh, will support the the way that uh, electric transport works. You're going to need, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of uh, recharge units, um, but you, you're also going to need to support manufacturing and big users of electricity. So the transmission network is going to be really important, but the microgrids is really where the resilience is going to be at and how communities... Wait, what, what's, what's a microgrid? A microgrid is is like uh, the national grid, only on a small scale. And um, so a lot of houses, we've got the highest um, uptake of solar and battery use uh, on households in Australia of any place in the world because we've got such great... Um, we've got such which, which is a great irony, isn't it? Because we, we're so far behind the rest of the world with so much of our climate change policy, yet we seem to lead the way on solar power yeah and i think it's because we're we're both a rich country where people can afford to put solar panels there were some policy settings that encouraged it uh, people wanted to control their their power bills um and of course we've got an abundance of um solar energy so mm. you know why wouldn't you one of the points that rory sutherland's makes you know my favorite behavioral scientist more favorite in fact darren than you um was that um uh, that's, that we've got all the policy centers in Australia for this, with the exception maybe of the rental market. Mm. But because it's a financial investment, we haven't actually approached the rental market enough to, to make this change. Mm. Yeah. Actually, um, aren't we starting to, or have plans to export solar panels? Up near Darwin, aren't they building a massive one? Well, I mean, that was the, the big project that got into, um, got into difficulties in terms of the investment mix to make it happen. But yeah, Sun Solar was going to take the world's largest solar farm and export it to Asia with an undersea cable. That's right, to yeah, Singapore. To Singapore, and, yeah. yeah. So, so where else are the jobs then, mate? So, so we, we talk about electrification. Um, mm. that, that's one part of climate change and renewables. There must be many other sectors. That if, if you're anybody looking to either change your career or coming out of school, whether in Australia or anywhere around the world, what are the sectors that you should be looking at? Yeah. Coppers. Coppers. Copper mining for the oldest transmission network. Or graphene, yeah, which is actually a lot better than copper. Is that what you were going to say? It, it's a, it's an interesting theory. Well, I mean, well, what you say is <laughs> that's what he says when he says it means you're talking it, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we all have our own different versions yeah. of that for you, Darren. Yeah, um, but putting it in a way that can be published on the Tinterweb. Um, uh, look, we're always going to need extractive industries for the types of changes that we're um, going to make. And so controlling fugitive emissions from the mining sector is going to be a really big thing, but a technical area. That's a cool um, phrase, isn't it? Yeah. What's that? Fugitive emissions. Yeah. Yeah. Stick with me. I know what I'm talking about. Um, the it's, like, it's a whole new experience for me on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <isn't it? laughs> I like it. It's kind of mansplain. It uh, goes <laughs> in large, isn't it? Yeah. It's like yeah. old white blokes. If we stop talking, the world would be a better place. Um, <laughs> but uh, keep that in. Um, so, <laughs> look, I think in terms of the really big moves, um, the demographic changes, uh, some of your intro really uh, foreshadowed where a lot of the jobs are. And 
uh, a lot of rich economies like ours are becoming service economies, and that's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you think about the number of um, you know nail places that you can go to now. You think about how the whole care sector, that the NDIS workforce, National Disability Insurance workforce, those things aren't going to change. There are going to be great opportunities there in the future. But when you look at the sorts of things that are going to experience rapid growth, and I know in a previous discussion we had, we talked about managed retreat. Um, no, so what, what is managed retreat? Oh, well, that's where communities have to move because where they've built um, is prone to the impacts of climate change. Mm. Um, so you could be on a flood cha- uh, plain, you could be uh, near a, uh, a bush reserve, which is going to catch fire, or you could be near the sea, which is going to rise and yeah. uh, storm surges affect it. So, Lucky not many Australians live by the sea. Yeah, yeah luckily only 87% of the population are at risk one way or the other. Is that a real number or would you just make it up? Or no, something? no, well, 80% of the population live in that coastal yeah. Uh, um, wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, when you think about that, there's going to be a, a boon in civil engineering, um, building protective measures, rebuilding infrastructure, those sorts of things. Um, and in fact, it might be a, a little tedious um, to conceive of, but uh, the role of councils is going to be absolutely seminal in responding to climate change. And some of the jobs that are going to be crucial, waste management, um, the kind of uh, increasing regulation around building requirements and so forth. So uh, the councils are at the front line of managing some of the key parts of the puzzle. So, so literally bigger council rules, bigger bureaucracies. Uh, uh, well, not necessarily service delivery agencies is yeah, really okay. what they are, if you think about it. Mm. Um, but uh, a lot of the response when the response comes, assuming that we're on a path where we're actually going to take proper action, is going to be driven by regulations, things that you can't any uh, can't do any longer, um, to open up opportunities to still provide a, a decent livelihood for everybody. John, you mentioned agencies. One of the roles of agencies that fascinated me in Lismore. Lismore is a town in um, uh, near the Queensland, New South Wales border in Australia. It's been flooded a few times and had a really severe flood recently. Was the role more of the not-for-profit agencies that had to go down there almost to provide housing and, and food and accommodation and medical support? And I don't know if this has been discussed, and I'm just kind of putting it out there, but we, we often associate, you know, those big things like Oxfam, Medicine Sans Frontiers, and, and those sort of organisations, and Red Cross with working across nations. But potentially there's a role for those not-for-profit agencies in this whole managed retreat piece too, isn't there, and the growth of those? Yeah, yeah, I would say that um, that's, a, that's a space where governments will need to invest. And in fact, there is a question about whether there's going to be enough money to go around to yeah. move entire populations uh, from you know, basically build houses for yeah. people um, when they were privately owned before. So, um, and, and I mean, they've, they've introduced the buyback scheme, haven't they, for places across Queensland and Lismore already. Mm. Uh, but that was my first thought when I heard the plan. I mean, it's fantastic. I, I love the fact that we're helping out people like this. But um, this, this... Doing it at scale this is, is yeah, this enormously is costly. The start yeah. of it, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so in terms of, um, in terms of how... It, 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 I think it's also interesting, the the Lismore example, I think there was a lot of self-organisation and I think a lot of people who worked locally um, just dropped what they were doing. I've worked with a number of um, people who just stopped um, and just went out and helped people clear out their houses because we're not yet mobilised. We don't have the infrastructure to be able to do that first responder type work and the community said, well... If not us, then who? Uh, and so there's after the event, there's a lot of um, anger about that. But one of the areas that I think will um, expand significantly after we have you know flood effect and and big storm impacts 
is the is the uh, emergency services workforce yeah. and so we've relied a lot on volunteers and we're you know for fighting bushfires in australia and wildfires in, in other parts of the world and there is a question about whether we're actually going to need to raise our taxes to be able to pay people to do that yeah. as a full-time job because it's going to happen more and more so yeah i mean i think that whole emergency services workforce um it will grow over the decades ahead yeah yeah and so if you were to provide advice then to somebody looking to reskill, because this is a growth industry, it's a huge industry, you know, where should people be looking to reskill? What, what sort of skills are you developing? But also, I suppose, pick one out of the air, mate. If you're going to create a business now for the future, what would that business look like? Well, I think all of the trades are going to be really strong. Mm. You know, I mean, they have, uh, that's 2.5% of the workforce in Australia are apprentices training for a trade. Yeah, which I think is the, uh, one of two highest countries in the world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Well, which you'd think straight away that's got to be replicated internationally because... You, you would think so because so much of the adaptive capacity mm. is really in technical skills. Is that an opportunity for Australia? Um, we, we are, you know, people look to apprenticeships, um, sectors around the world that, that, that lead the world. We always look at Germany and Australia. Is there an opportunity for Australia in this climate change piece to be helping the rest of the world develop proper trades and skills pathways? Well, it would be good if we did it, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. uh, rather than have sort of policy entropy that we've had over the yeah, last yeah. decade or so. Yeah. So, um, look, I, I think that a lot of trade skills uh, will evolve quite quickly. Um, and a proportion of people's trades jobs will change. Um, so when you have a look over the last 10 years or so, in terms of brand new jobs, yeah, well, the renewable energy technicians is, is a job that didn't exist 10 years ago. But mainly, it's the same types of jobs, just done differently. Mm. Um, and when you think about those in construction, that's a really big employer of trade skills. And it's an area where, um, you know, adaptive capacity is going to be embedded through higher, higher levels of uh, requirement. It's the tradies that are going to have to learn how to meet the higher standards, um, build the walls that have got greater insulation capacity, uh, the commercial buildings that meet the five or six star green star requirements. And it's not... Um, it's not trivial. It's, it's quite complex. But the core skills remain very similar. It's the additional um, uh, ability to pick up the new skills a retrain as you go that's going to uh, mark um, uh, you know economies that make the transition successfully will have a way of retraining their um, staff quite quickly as requirements and technologies change yeah so, so let's, let's talk about the behavioral science human part of this darren um, how do we adapt then as tra- as jobs go we're going to see jobs leaving the economy pretty rapidly uh, because of AI, but we're going to see this whole growth in the climate change space that um, Ben's talking about. What's the advice you give to somebody in, in terms of coping with those changes, being able to adapt to new technologies and, and new sectors? No, it takes quite a resilient mindset. And we've been chatting before that in, in some economies, such as the UK and USA, the over 45s, over 50s um, are not adapting. Um, they're not not training and and you used to learn a trade and we all know now that you change jobs um, a, a lot is it something like 12 times this on average something you know? huge isn't it and and um you used to get a job for life I, I still wear when i'm nervous like meeting hanging out with you going out uh, <laughs> a gold watch that my great uncle Elbert got at stepney glass and bottle factory after you got a great uncle Albert, and you're known as Dell. 
in there. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember called Rodney, yeah. <laughs> but um, what's weird is uh, <laughs> that, that people aren't used to changing and upskilling. It's a totally different psychological capability. Um, you used to learn stuff when we were hunting and gathering or agriculturally, uh, one skill and one set of skills and, and use those throughout the rest of your life. But we, we have to change the way we think about this. And people invest their personalities and their personas in their trade. Now, if you're having to change what you do, and it's been estimated um, that up to 30% of the workforce will have to significantly change what they do, not just pivot, but do a 180 on, on yeah, what I, I guess that's what's coming, isn't it? We're used to saying 12 changes. If you look at those changes, and they're, they're kind of often they're similar jobs. Yeah, they're changing employers sets. or yeah. contracts. But, but now we're talking about such massive changes where we're going to see a whole raft of jobs go because of AI technology, but a whole raft of jobs be created through mm. this sector of climate change. And there are those three things, the pressures of, of, of uh, climate change and the two under technology, AI and robotization or automation. Um, and but then what's different is it's not just a sector that's changing, it's all sectors. And it's not just a country or a region, it's global. So it's very, very different and very disruptive. And they're great opportunities, but our minds have to be so flexible with, with this. And it, that, that requires great resilience in, in humans. And one of the things that exercises my mind is uh, how do we, um, you know, seed this process? Because I think for a, a lot of um, the, a lot of the challenge is going to be around how we find the trainer workforce to be able to keep across the change and to have enough people with enough of a, you know, gender balance in the training workforce to be able to ensure that we can we can retrain and so it, it could well be that some of the people who don't want to be on the tools anymore should retrain as trainers and then get the gap training that they need as part of that process so there's a sort of upskilling for them as trainers so the issue is their their funding for training generally comes from government central federal government and governments are notorious at being very slow and very reactive in these changes. So the employment services industry is generally about motivating and how do you find and apply for a job. Now it's going to be how do you totally change your psychological and physical and mental capabilities um, for a new job, which might be the growth areas are domestic chores, gardening, cleaning, care. Yeah, um, the, the worry about that, though, is, is this growth of this servantile culture, isn't it? I, I, I do get worried about this, that we, we create, you know, Uber. I mean, Uber drivers won't be around long if automation has its way. But, of course, we, we run the risk of, of creating such different classes of jobs, don't we, by having yeah, these types of positions. What I've noticed is that the, the a cleaner earns more per hour than I did as managing or director or CEO of a, of a medium-sized business. A per hour, mm. you know, you used to put in... 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Yeah. And, and, and that, I'm paying that cleaner um, a lot of money and a lot of respect. And I need them. You can't get a gardener for love nor money where I am. Yeah. Um, because they're so busy. And, and so it's a redistribution of funding. And, and, and it is seen that there's two big influences, these, these sort of domestic roles. But, you know, because of the demand for them, um, their status goes up. But also the commercialization or, or the, the, the um, expenditure from e developing economies uh, is significant. 
So the demand for goods and consumption from uh, the African and Asian countries in particular that have more ex money, more disposable income will drive, you know, you feel like it's the death of manufacturing but and it's robotization, but there'll be a, a big well, demand. One of the sectors that doesn't get talked about a lot in terms of the automation um, that's occurred is uh, agricultural production. And mm. so that it's been subject to massive economies of scale and now a lot of robots going in. And, you know, the best performing farms are those which use uh, high scientific input to maximise their, their ability to produce come what may. And I actually think that um, given the kind of climate changes that we're anticipating, having enough food, producing food in a way that is uh, sustainable for uh, the biodiversity of the planet um, is going to be a really big challenge. So when you think about the emerging economies that you were talking about and those countries that are, are getting richer um, and looking for a range of different consumption um, items, actually hierarchy of needs, food is at the top of the, the list. So mm -hmm. our ability to continue to be a food bowl uh, in ways that uh, don't mine the soil but uh, build soil so I, I think that the whole piece around regenerative farming and the interface with um, new ways of farming, new mindset for farming um, and new machines to be able to uh, support that, that movement is probably going to create great opportunities and certainly very high demand globally. It's, yeah, it's interesting to say that just yesterday I was talking to the next door farmer and in between saying, get off my land, <laughs> uh, he said, um, uh, he, got they, a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. um, they were doing a course and it's on, now they're sheep farmers, so it's a different, it's not um, as, as open to mechanization. Um, but the, their course they're doing at the moment is on data analytics. Mm. And he, even with that, on, on when's the best time to do this or mm. that, when, when should you do crutching, when you should rotate them, how to mill and till the land so that it's um, better production of of quality grass for them and this sort of thing. It's, it's interesting. Oh, it's these, these, these These transferable skills that you're getting as well. But yeah, the mechanisation of food to feed the 8 million mm. um, is, is, is interesting because it's a great loss of jobs as well, but it's fundamentally the mm. primary, the most important industry we've got. One of the things that has come out of COVID when it comes to skills, because Australia's been sort of left in this situation where we've got such low unemployment and we're such a so desperately need of skills, and I think most of the planet is going through this as well at the moment, is that we've obviously, skills from overseas has become increasingly competitive. We've seen countries like Canada and the UK kind of forge ahead of Australia when it comes to seizing those skills, albeit for different reasons. What we're talking about, though, with climate change is going to be a world issue. Every country is going to be facing this, and we have to face it collectively to, de to deal with it. W will that be a source of skills for us? And if it's not, because we're all going to be battling over them, how do we actually develop the skills we need to tackle climate change and how do we get people to, to go over to these new skills, to want to re-skill, re to, to want to go down these pathways? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? A global a global problem requires a glo global mm. thinking and we're actually not very good at it. We default to nativism and the nation state. Oh, no, we, we were talking previously with, with, with the COVID thing, we, we didn't just, it wasn't just nativism, it was Queenslander versus New South Wales, you know, we, we were keeping people from moving across the countries to see dying family members, you know, it was, it was incredible. We really, we really re do revert to our worst selves in the crisis. But wasn't there the best of ourselves as well in terms of global 
an international non-competitive cooperation to try and solve things and exchange ideas. Singapore, I think, gave us the the, the tracing apps or checking yeah. in apps for free, that, that that sort of stuff. There was some great It, it seems like a mixed bag, well. doesn't it? Because then, of course, we talk about vaccines where countries like Australia were, were taking vaccines far way ahead of nations that needed them far worse, uh, far more than us, you know? Mm. Why? Because we're richer? Because we're richer, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. More, more power. And hoarding them. Um, and it, it was neither in the interests of the countries that needed them desperately, nor in our oh, interests yeah. in the long term. Didn't they buy something like seven or 13 vaccines per person? Mm. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> And there's other nations Why? that actually had a far worse COVID problem than us. Mm. And, and then when you when you extrapolate out that where did the variants of concern you know emanate from? It was from those countries that we didn't assist with the uh, with the vaccines in the first and second waves of rollout of those vaccines. So and, and uh, I guess, I guess this despite is, ourselves, you th- know. this is my point. I suppose is that countries like Australia, Canada, the UK, we're going to be trying to steal the skills off of all these countries. Right, just like we did with the vaccine, we're going to try and steal all the skills off these countries to, to further our own country's response to, to building all these new networks you talk about. But that actually, it's a global problem. So we're not actually helping anyone by doing I, this. I don't know. It, what's this Daily Mail story I hear of people in Romania, a whole town built on the money sent back from Romanian people working in Britain. Like, if you can steal the steal the skills it's because you can afford them to incentivize them but a lot of that money gets sent back to uplift that that environment that they're coming from so i think it could be a a spreading of the wealth isn't it rather than a concentration of it well at at its best but where's the ethics of training a doctor in sri lanka and then bring them out here Uh, i mean you can understand it from an individual perspective you, you would like to live in a rich country and be paid a lot of money to be a doctor. Um, but why are we getting, why are we getting um, you know, developing nations to pay uh, for the, the medical training for people coming here? And so, uh, so I guess that's my concern is that it's a global problem. We don't have a good history of, of working globally on these issues, certainly not since really the GFC. Hmm. But when it comes to skills issue, we do need to develop the skills and share them globally to tackle climate change surely. Hmm. And, you know, the, uh, there have been really good examples in the past, like Cuba used to um, train medicos in other, in other countries. And the goodwill that was engendered through that was, was fantastic. And so, yeah, we just need to take a global mindset to try and solve some of these things. And also take collective action to the things that are making it worse, stop the things that are making it worse and start to collaborate to, to um, you know, no, you don't, you don't believe. <laughs> no, actually, you're you, right, and I'd like that, but I've never seen any evidence in history of where that occurs unless there's a religious or imperialistic driver or a communist, you know, because I bet the Cuban... The formation, of the, the the formation of the United Nations, for example. Who's that? And yeah, then, exactly. <laughs> or a financial driver, a yeah, market GFC. forces driver, and that's how you can harness it. And you can influence those if you've got strong government or acting in unison with like the EU or um, God knows what other ASEAN um, organisations. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting um, when the economy is under threat and particularly where um, the accumulated wealth of rich people is under threat, um, we're able to mobilise resources very quickly. 
And when you uh, say we, are you including yourself in the incredibly rich people? That I, I am incredibly oh, rich, amazing. but only because I know you, Darren. <laughs> um, financially, I'm I'm impoverished for some of these rather. Financially, strong... I'm impoverished for knowing Darren. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mentally, you're impoverished. Mentally, yeah, yeah. Socially, so. yeah. <laughs> what was Not your helpful. point? <laughs> my point is, my point is, you tend to bring this back to the. Uh, how the individual um, can respond, and actually, the nature of the um, the nature of the challenge is to frame what are the collaborative mechanisms we can do to drive global change, um, and so not just throw up our hands mm. and say, "Oh, um, I, I can't think of any examples apart from the UN that you inconveniently note, uh, mentioned uh, where where we set something up or, or the League of Nations after the First World War." You know, these oh, the, collaborative. The, the, the League of Nations was a bit of a was it thirty-two countries in the end without America? Yeah, it didn't it didn't work so well, but at least yeah. they were trying. They tried actually, to. and it's a fair point because we've not been in such a situation where we can collaborate practically on a global scale. But now it's just so easy to to mm. chat, to communicate, mm. to to interact, and potentially share skills and the ability mm. to skill. I what you were going to say to mm. potentially share skills <laughs> internationally, man of mystery. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> What are the takeaways from this conversation, James? So, so I guess we, we've been talking about the fact that um, we focus massively on the skills needs and where humans should be fo- should be focusing their their learnings and their their future opportunities around you know allied health and, and digital space. But we, we have missed this whole climate change piece in many ways. There's such huge opportunity there. What are what are the takeaways from these conversations for for humans for the future in terms of jobs and skills? Yeah, well, flexibility and adaptability throughout your life and the ability to pick up new skills uh, for components of your job and, and, and to adapt to the changing labour market. Um, because some, some people will lose out, um, yeah. but mainly on balance um, that the change will be change for the better. So uh, being part of change for the better um, is absolutely key in positioning yourself to be part of that change. Mm. Yeah. And to, I mean, I couldn't have said it better, the psychological flexibility and adaptability and not adhering your personality to a particular job is key. But the other, the, the, the second thing on a, on a local government, a national government and a global government scale is be more collaborative, but responsive and quick um, and have bright people working for you to be able to respond to these changes because a lot of the changes will be reactive. And it's like, oh, shit, that's suddenly happened. That's on fire. I need to do this yeah. and that. Yeah, so interesting. Well, as always, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Darren, for joining us on your own podcast. Uh, <laughs> Can you get rid of him? Yeah. <laughs> well, to be honest, like, this has been an audition. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'll get my coat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Ben, for joining us again, mate. It's always a pleasure to have you and to share your wisdom this time around skills and climate change. We really do appreciate it. Uh, If you've enjoyed this today, make sure you check us out next Tuesday morning, 7 a.m. for our next podcast coming out. We're out 7 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Until then, go back, check out our last podcast and make sure you subscribe to on YouTube. We'd love to see you on our Facebook group too. It's a lot of fun. But uh, number one thing I can ask you to do is hit that subscribe button. Only fans. Uh, we haven't. We'll, we'll, the only fans is coming once uh, once Darren gets desperate. <laughs> once Darren gets. What do you mean? Once I get desperate, desperate for being removed from this uh, from this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Don't go to any fans. Go to YouTube. <laughs> Cheers. Oi, budge. <laughs>